Welcome to F3. Really excited to have you. This has been an awesome experience bringing people together. Uh, it's an opportunity for me to spend some time with some of the thought leaders of the industry, people that get to observe what's happening across the entire landscape of freight. And one such person is my good friend, Peter, CEO and founder of Carrier Direct. Peter, how are you? I'm great, Craig. Um, I'm thrilled to be on and calling in from Boulder, Colorado. So Boulder is an amazing city. There's a great Garth Brooks song about Boulder, Colorado. I'm not going to sing it today uh, <laughs> because I, I don't think I want to do that and embarrass myself. But I do recommend it. Every time I hear Boulder, I think of that song. So uh, you moved from Chicago to Boulder. How's that transition been? Yeah. So, you know, it's been interesting since COVID. We've we've moved our company um, more or less remote. I mean, we've hired folks all over the country and actually all over the world. From my perspective, it gives us access to the best talent. I think you need a, a hybrid model to be successful in, uh, in 2021. The, the move has been easy. Uh, my dog loves the extra space. We've been doing lots of hiking and um, definitely a lot sunnier than I remember Chicago. So as, as sad as it was to leave all of our frayed friends home, I'm actually heading there later this week. Uh, so I'm, I'm still back quite a bit. Now you are you traveling a lot still these days, or, or is, are you staying pretty close to confounded being home? Yeah, you know it's funny. I think I think for the whole month of October, I was in Boulder for a total of about six or seven days. Um, we are we are on the road at least for the clients that are willing to have us on site. I was also at the um, the ATA conference in Nashville last week, which was had really strong attendance. Um, so definitely. Definitely out and about, though, taking the precautions that we need to where we can. It's awesome. So, Pete, you, uh, Care Direct is a consulting uh, firm, uh, really going deep into companies. You also build, you have a tech stack and you do some uh, core development yourselves. Tell us a little bit more about what you guys are involved in for those that aren't deeply familiar with Care Direct. Yeah, so we do um, strategy and technology consulting and custom software development entirely focused on logistics and supply chain. We work with shippers. Um, we work with capacity providers, so carriers, 3PLs, freight brokers. And then we work with companies that serve the space, software companies. And, and, and actually, we've been doing quite a bit of work with private equity firms um, doing M&A. And I, I think what's been interesting, so our business, we're probably about 80, 80 head count. We should be at about 100 by the end of the year. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think our business is almost a bit of a bellwether for, for the attitudes of the industry. And, and what I mean by that is we've seen, we've grown by about 120% since pre-COVID. And, and, and what I think that that means is that the industry is recognizing the need for change. And, and whether it's digital transformation or growth strategy or moving into or scaling operations based on the needs of your customers, um, we have seen a significant growth in, in demand um, for our business. And, and I think that that's, I think that that's really representative of, of the shift in attitudes of, of the leaders in the industry. Now, is it coming from new entrants, technology companies that have raised venture capital, or is a lot of the momentum coming from what we would consider legacy established companies? Yeah, so it's, it's probably about 30%, 20 to 30% new entrants, the, the majority coming from, from more established businesses. Um, what we're finding is that the more established businesses really, really are, are seeing um, a need for, for transformation and, and they're seeing what the larger um, thought leaders have done, like the J.B. Hunts of the world. Um, and 
And, and then what we're seeing is the newer entrants are looking to us for deep industry expertise. They may have the best technologists in the space, um, but the reality is we've worked with, with, with hundreds of transportation companies and, and really know the space inside and out and, and can, help, can help provide that perspective. So I guess go to market for those digital natives or upstarts, understanding the sort of motion of the market and how it works is uh, there's a big gap there. It does strike me that there, what I've seen is that you have technology centric companies with the founder doesn't have a lot of uh, domain expertise, sort of making some, I would argue, naive sort of uh, assumptions about the market. And then you have people with very deep expertise about how the market works, but not a great tech stack. It sounds like you guys are blending the two environments. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great way to put it, Craig. Um, and we're we're lucky that our our team is a mix of folks like myself that come from a traditional consulting background, working with with Accenture. Um, and then we've got folks like Ryan Schreiber, who's on FreightWaves quite a bit, that spent ten plus years in the industry, starting with Echo, and then has scaled a few businesses. And then we have folks like like Steve Dantas, our COO, that come from a, a technology services background. So we we bring kind of the, the mix of those so that we're, we're not just a bunch of consultants waving our hands. I was one of those people for a few years and I, it rubbed me the wrong way. So I, I feel like we've kind of built our business uh, and the values of the company based on the things I didn't like about big consulting firms. So, so Pete, uh, you're seeing a lot of momentum in the business around digitization. Is that going into new business models, new technology spending? Where, where are you seeing a lot of the action? Yeah, it's, you know, honestly, Craig, we were looking at this the other day. It's it's a pretty, it's actually a pretty healthy split of, I mean, it's almost a, a, an exact split right down the middle, 50-50. We're about um, half of our development work, and, and, and just for reference, of our 80 team members, probably about 40 of them are software engineers, um, and, and about maybe a dozen of them are product and program managers, so, so pretty heavy um, technology footprint, and um, I'd say about half of the projects that we're doing are, call them legacy or or, or existing businesses that are expanding into new um, into new modes or service offerings, um, and then the other half are, you know, legacy companies that that have invested in some legacy software that realize that they need to, for instance, move to the cloud um, to enable a remote work environment or. Or maybe they want to hook up to some new third-party applications and realize that the legacy technology that they're working with uh, can't support them. Um, so it's it's a pretty healthy mix. The really the the market. I I've been back in freight, even though I'm from this industry. I really hiatus from it. Back in freight since 2016, and I think about all of the sort of generations of technology and what's happening and. In those days, there was a very clear line between sort of digital natives, venture capital funded companies. Trucker Path, if you remember, Pete, was the was the iconic, you know, unicorn, uh, unicorn bound. They never made it to unicorn status, but certainly the most iconic brand in freight tech back when I first got in back into freight in 2016, it went through an aqua hire sort of a resurface gone through a couple of generations. I think it's it's now back on a more solid footing with some new management that are from the industry. But if I look at about it now, the lines are really blended. I mean, you have the digital brokers like uh, Convoy and Transfix, the next trucking that are sort of pure play natives that sort of have their part of the world. But then you have the incumbents 
that have really blended a lot of that technology. It's, you know, what we sell Uber Freight by and Transplace. It seems like it's very hard to, to delineate between the sort of digital freight brokerages and more digital enabled uh, brokerages like an Echo or C.H. Robinson. What are, what are you seeing out there? You know, I, I think that the market is proving that that a hybrid strategy is what's needed to be successful. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, we, we, we talk about tech, new tech, new venture back tech coming into the space. I mean, I, I think originally Uber Freight and Convoy thought that they could build multi-billion dollar businesses with, with carriers entirely self-servicing using their app. And, and, and JB Hunt went kind of the complete opposite approach where they, they took their existing ICS division and bolted software on top of it. And, and, and actually that JB Hunt was able to catch up to Convoy and, and Uber Freight really quickly. So I, I think my point is, is that I, I think what we're, what we're seeing is that a hybrid model um, is really the way of the future. And, 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 and some of the new technology that's come into the play, into the space has enabled third party, you know, kind of more traditional brokers and 3PLs to compete in the digital marketplace space. I mean, that's what I'm seeing. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that, Greg? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think J.B. Hunt had some advantages, right? Like if you think about J.B. Hunt, they have a truckload operation. They have a very large uh, intermodal, you know, they are the largest intermodal player uh, in the market. Uh, and then they have had a long legacy in logistics. So I think in some ways, you know, J.B. Hunt probably had a, a bunch of inherent advantages to understand adoption cycles and how to get that carriers couldn't be true self-service. Where I think Convoy uh, and and perhaps Uber, uh, uh, Convoy was more of a pure play digital. A lot of the people made up the initial Convoy team were not from the industry, which in many ways uh, was an advantage to them because they were able to sort of sell this or tell this story of how they were disrupting and were able to actually build a lot of support for it. Um, but over time, they've also migrated their model. It's interesting because you have these pure play digitals that have had to go more into sort of physical, like touching the freight and having, you know, uh, building platforms that we would more recognize as sort of an industry platform. And then you have the opposite side, which is people like J.B. Hunt, and you could put C.H. Robinson in that uh, category. Uh, and then now Uber with this acquisition transplace have sort of blended. It's going to be, I think, in, in, you know, it's interesting because you think about exits, which I think a lot about exits because, A, you know, we do, a, we study a lot about the fundraising cycle, we cover it. B, we're a venture back company. And if you're a founder and you're not thinking about maximizing your, you know, your valuation, then you're not doing the fiduciary of, of what your investors expect of you. So it's sort of built into us as founders to think through that. And I think about the exits. And I think a couple of years ago, people would certainly subscribe to the fact that you know, Convoy and some of the digital natives may get a different type of valuation because they're native, they're sort of digital natives. It strikes me as the longer that the cycle goes on, that it's going to be harder for the digital natives to be able to trade at a multiple that's distinctly different than sort of the market. Now, I will say that it is also possible that if you're a digital enabled freight brokerage, that you may get the benefit of the digital sort of valuation. We saw that recently with Echo's exit. 
We've also seen it with Transplace's exit. If you think about Transplace, a, a company that sold for a billion to, you know, four years ago that sells for something like, gosh, was it three billion, three and a half billion something? Pretty big. But it strikes me that that the digital enabled and the digital natives are going to start to trade at similar valuations. And there's everybody else that, you know, there's going to be a much bigger delta. What it, I mean, that's what I see. I don't know how you're thinking about sort of the landscape of digital broker. Well, and it's, and it's interesting because I, you know, I, I've always been incredibly bullish on this, on the idea of, of, a, of an asset backed logistics business. I mean, like, like Werner is rebrand Werner is rebranding themselves as a logistics company with that happens to have trucks covenant in your backyard rebranded from covenant transport to covenant logistics. You know, you look at like Uber freight and convoy and, and arrive logistics are all offering trailer pools. So I'm, it's a bit of a roundabout answer, but what I mean is that I, I think that like at one end of the spectrum, you had kind of like pure digital bro pure digital brokers and then more legacy brokers. And at the other end, you've got like asset players blending into brokerage. And what I think is going to happen is that I, I agree that that I that the multiples are going to start um blending a little bit. And 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 the um, you know, I, I think that the other variable there is that there are other levers beyond just pure digital brokerage. That can drive um, that can drive a multiple up. I, you know, a, lo a lot of the big brokerages have been expanding into managed transportation business, which on paper is highly sticky. Um, really, almost looks at like subscription services revenue. I think that that was a big driver behind the Transplace acquisition was that they could they could almost look at at a lot of their business as as subscription revenue. And so I I, I think we're going to keep seeing blending of these different service offerings. And and my my hope is that over the next five years the financial markets mature to see the value prop of of why a blended approach is actually uh, the most valuable and the most differentiated from a customer value prop perspective. I mean, you've seen Arc Arc Best. You know, if you look at their stock buyer with Mo, they did the transaction Molo, which is arguably, if you sort of look at the target venture vintage. Uh, to post 2015 and beyond is sort of a new generation of, of freight technology that's uh, entered our industry. Molo, now it was a more traditional, not as, as digital as perhaps a convoy is, but still had an air of digitization to it. It is arguably the best exit of any of these post-2015 freight tech companies. And that's really what this is all about, right? For a right. founder, it's all about exits. So, yeah, ROI. I mean, what strikes you about that transaction that's say interesting about it than than a traditional, you know, what we've seen with the the Jordan Group and the Global Trans that have been buying a lot of companies? How, how what what strikes you about that one? Well, so if if you look back, um, we published we published a market perspective last year, and one of our big one of our big predictions for the next five years was that we were going to see a major carrier acquire a major name brand 3PL or freight broker. Um, and, and I think I think what strikes me about that is that, you know, Mo Molo very, very quickly built a really strong brand in the industry. And they capitalized on on um, on on maybe some tactics and techniques that from 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 some of the bigger legacy 3PLs and brokerages that that Andrew and Vogre that Silver and Vogrich just didn't like. And, and I think that they really built what, what strikes me as interesting about that is I think that they built a values-based business 
sold it to the market, targeting targeting a specific value prop for shippers, carriers, and employees. And they were able to scale really quickly in one of the in one of the toughest hiring markets um, ever. And, and I think I think you combine that with the fact what, what makes it a really unique acquisition for ArcBest was that my understanding was that there was only about a 20% overlap from a customer perspective. And so that 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 in and of itself, I think, makes it puts ArcBest in a position to potentially offer a higher price because there's there's so much cross-selling opportunity between the two businesses. So, so I, I think when you look at, at kind of all like the brand name, the value prop for the three main stakeholders, and then and then this customer overlap component, I, I, I think it's a I think it's a fastball over the plate. But Peter, if you think about Molo, it didn't have a huge digital storyline. Like Andrew uh, did not double down on, hey, we're tech native, we're, you know, we're tech. I think he used the word tech enabled a, a few times, but never sold himself as a digital broker. And you, it's interesting because you go back to 2016, which is sort of, again, my re, you know, rediscover of the freight tech space is there were a lot of companies that said, oh, we're not a broker. They really were a broker. They were principal in the transaction, but they were like, oh, we're a marketplace business. But Andrew never pretended it was like that they were something that they weren't. They were always very consistent. And it's interesting because most of the companies that have done really well in the, that have pure played digital actually doubled down on the fact that they were a broker. Like Convoy never pretended they weren't a broker. They always stated they were. There's a few others that didn't. But it does strike me that that they got to business really quick and because they just did what worked and, and they focused on the cultural aspects of the organization and how that extended to their customers much more so than, than some of the companies that perhaps didn't uh, do that. Well, and, and, you know, they're, they're, thankfully, we actually have a really interesting real-time um, comparison. I mean, look at, look at Hub Group's acquisition of JobTank. I mean, what is so unique looking at those two acquisitions side by side, which, which by the way, both of those I would call, I would call Molo and Choptank maybe tech-enabled businesses at best, right? Both of them were using off-the-shelf software that they'd configured. Um, but there was nothing distinctive about their technology. No, there and wasn't. I don't mean any disrespect to either organization, but they were, like you said, these were, these were just personality, cultural-driven organizations. Yeah, and, and and but what I think is so interesting is, you know, Molo sold for three twenty three hundred twenty five million plus an earnout on maybe a six hundred million dollar run rate, but with almost no EBITDA. Shop Tank sold for about one hundred and forty million on like three hundred on on a fourteen million dollar EBITDA number. I mean, what what I think is so interesting is, and I think that this speaks to, to the M and A. The, the desire for M and A in in our space right now. I mean, basically, what the industry is, what the what the markets are telling us is that a fast growing, values based organization is actually worth more than a slowly growing, stable, profitable business. And and it's 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 certainly an interesting time to be in the space. That's true in every market, right? Growth trumps all. I mean, it's interesting because. I know you spent some time in the consulting business, but McKenzie did this fascinating report because a lot of people sort of attack the valuation metrics of high growing businesses. And, but if you go back and look at since 1980, and this is 
we're talking pre sort of cloud generation or last couple of years, but all the way back to 1980, all the way through the 2000s. I think they published the report in 2017 or something. And they looked at it that the multiples you get on high growing businesses are 5x what a value business will trade at. In other words, it and, and what's interesting about it is if a company goes from a high growth to a moderate growing company, high growth is anything above 40%. Sort of moderate growing company, you would say at 10, 15%, is that your multiples go from, you know, the sort of upper end of the echelon to the lower end of it. Growth trumps all, which is why I think drove these these valuation deltas between Chop Tank and and you see it in public markets, companies that are consistently growing have much higher multiples. We see it in the freight tech space, is the the multiples paid for or valued on companies that are hot super growers is very different than companies. I mean, I can tell you my board is all about growth. Like that's the, like we achieved profitability because we last year when the, we struggled to do our first quarter raise because of the headwinds with COVID and we work and just sort of change of, there was a season when venture capital was risk off for like three months. It just happened to be raising in those three months, which is not a great time to raise. It's now flipped back to high growth, but it's interesting because we got to profitability and and a normal business or a business that wasn't focused on growth, your board would say, this is great. We're going to flow off cash flow and pre-EBITDA. Our board said, we need to double down on growth. We need to accelerate the burn because venture investors know something that if you're trying to maximize the value of the company, it's all growth. Growth is the only thing that matters. Growth and unit economics matter. But it strikes me that what Molo did was it gave Arc Best a story about growth that it could tell in its brokerage operations that's different than what a business with zero EBITDA would or a very small EBITDA would change at because they they have maintained that growth story. There's another broker out there that's also done that. Look at Arrived Logistics, which is arguably we haven't exited. I mean, they had some recapitalization, but you still have Matt Pyatt's growing it by all by all stretch. It's a it's continuing. The story's continuing on as an independent company. You know, that's a company that has gotten over to a billion dollars in that same timeline. But and its valuation is much bigger than even some of the larger public companies that are out there. It's all growth, right? It's all growth, totally. And I, I think that that's what you know. There was um, I, there was there was an HBR article that was written in 2008 or 2009 that I actually, I found when we were going through the COVID recession that basically researched the most successful, what did the most successful companies coming out of recessions do? And consistently something like 81, 85 plus percent of the companies that doubled down on growth during, during recessions are the ones that absolutely catapulted in the future. And so I, I, I agree. I, I think, I think Molo, sold or told an incredibly compelling growth story. And, you know, one thing that's so unique about this space is that it's so big that, um, I mean, you know, C.H. Robinson at, at 18 or 20 billion in revenue, I mean, they're, they're, they're single digit percentage points of, of the TAM. I mean, so, so I, I think that that's what's, we've, we've been doing quite a bit of work on the M&A side, particularly helping private equity firms um, assess businesses. And, one of the reasons why they're all so interested in the space is just because there's so much opportunity. It's so big. And and, and, and it's and, early, right? It's, it's early, so early. Right? It's it's incredibly early. Yeah. It is incredibly early. And and I think 
you know, I, I think that there are a lot of things that businesses can do to differentiate themselves and build a growth story, you know, expanding into new into new modes and service offerings. I mean, we've been um, we're, we're doing a demo during F3 with uh, partnered with with TI, with Transportation Insight. We've been working with them for the last year. They're launching a, vir a virtual parcel network where basically they're aggregating parcel shipments from shippers, move it using NTG to move the truckload. And then they're using third-party final mile carriers to do the distribution. They, they think that they can compete with UPS and FedEx and Amazon because UPS and, and FedEx, to some extent, have said that they're limiting how much capacity they're adding to their network. I think that there are so many, to your point about how early we are, there are so many opportunities for, for businesses that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years to differentiate and compete. Um, they, 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 they just need to think a little bit differently about their business. Yeah, it's a, to me, it strikes me, and I've, said, I've used this analogy a lot, now it's starting to take hold. Uh, I'd like to think I started a trend here. I don't know that I did, but uh, but if you look at the Lehman Brothers moment in financial services, and I spent 10, 10 years in payment, so uh, I saw it firsthand, is is during the Lehman moment, it, it sort of catapulted all these companies in, finance, in fintech to record high valuations, and that momentum is continued. The amount of money uh, flowing into fintech that have backed companies like Venmo and Robinhood and Square has just been unprecedented. And it strikes me that the COVID crisis, the, the one that we're living in, sort of recovering from right now, is the Lehman moment for supply chain technology, is that all of a sudden there's so much capital. And this is all about momentum. I mean, investing in valuations is all about momentum is that we've reached the point where people now have broad awareness of the issues. Back in the financial crisis, there was sort of this broad awareness of all the issues of banks and, and sort of the existing institutions. People really doubted them. In this crisis, people now realize that there's just a lot of problems and fragmentation and a lot of issues. And that means that investors are excited about them. You no longer have to go in and tell an investor about how big the market is how broken the the processes are or how much desire there is for technology because they're experiencing it firsthand and that's a change. And that just means that founders get this chance, but it also strikes me that we're very early. And the thing is that I think a lot of the people that are in the industry, the legacy of people that are in the industry have thought that this was all going to run its course. I've seen this before. It came up a lot. I saw this during the internet age or, I've heard, you know, companies, these digital natives start up and they go bust. This is different. And we're still in the very early innings of it. I mean, is that fair from your standpoint? I couldn't I could not agree more. And, and I, I think I, I take a bullish perspective on on what transportation looks like for the next few years. I mean, you know, we can we can talk about opening up the ports. And so but but the challenge is, is if you fix the port issue, then there's a drainage issue. If you fix the drainage issue, then there's. There's a distribution center issue, and then there's a cross-country move, and then there's a final mile issue like like these. And, and by the time you fix one, something up chain has been broken as well. And so that's that's why I, I think I, I think that this is closer to the new norm um, than than where we have been. And I I, I agree with 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 your Lehman moment um, parallel. I mean, something I've been talking about quite a bit lately is um, I, I almost feel like transportation today is where is where I, IT or technology was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, technology was a cost center. It was, how do I spend the least amount of money on this 
so that I can just manage my books and my systems. People weren't really looking at it as, as, as how do I create new revenue streams with technology? I think, I think what's happened with transportation is that over the last five years, it's gone from being a cost center that is entirely commoditized based on price to shippers are realizing that transportation can be a differentiator and you can actually redesign your business model based on, on, on transportation. And, and if you, by the way, if you're an e-commerce business, your package delivery is the only physical experience that your customer has with, with your business. And, and, and that's, I think that that's transformational and, 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 and the, the, the transportation companies, the carriers, the 3PLs, the freight brokers, the digital brokerages, everyone, those that can recognize that and, 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 and capitalize and differentiate and build better customer experiences based on, based on, um, on redesigning their business model on that fact, I, I think are going to be the ones that win. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I think the point you make about customer engagement the sort of touch point is the delivery. And that's true even in the restaurant, local delivery. Like, you know, the person that dries my food from the restaurant on a DoorDash is, that's that's the impression that that has left for me about certain restaurants. Uh, how they package it up matters. How they box it matters. How they seal it to make sure it's non-tampered matters. But when you talk about e-commerce, it also matters how the, the products are being delivered to me. Is it, you know, is it timely? Do I trust the time? One of the things that strikes me, this conversation I get, I get asked a lot is when is it returned to normal? And I've thought a lot about this because it's, I get asked quite a bit, usually by people who are outside the industry because people in the industry are like, I don't have a clue what normal even means today. But it does strike me that what my answer is when we start having consistency or dependability and we can trust delivery times, when something's going to be there is when we get to this new normal. Maybe we'll accept deliveries that are a week late, or it takes a week longer, I should say, uh, than what we would have experienced prior to that. We may be okay with that. Like we realize that we sort of stretched everything as far as we can go. Maybe we have to bounce back a little bit. We can take a little bit longer to get things. What we don't want to tolerate is ordering something and not having any clue when it's going to show up. I think that's the stuff that drives whether you're in corporate America running a supply chain or a consumer, it's the stuff that drives you nuts is not knowing when something's going to be there. So, I mean, it's funny you say that, you know, we talked about how we just moved here. Um, my wife and I ordered some outdoor furniture on West Elm, like early September that was scheduled for delivery end of September. The delivery date has changed six times. Now it's looking like between December and May. I mean, it, the whole thing is a joke, right? And it's like six months. Like oh, it's we're not even talking like six days, six months. And by the way, like they have like they have the the chair, but not the cushions for the chair. They have the cushions for the ottoman, but not the ot. I mean, like they're missing one piece of five pieces of furniture or something. But 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 where I'm going with this is, you know, I I, I think you make a really interesting point around consumer sentiment and 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 like really the new, like we get back to normal when people start trusting the system again. And I think history has proven that it takes a long time to build that trust. The, the parallel I'm going to draw here is look at the banking, the, the, the uh, banking industry 10 years ago. I mean, I, I, I've, I do most of my banking with Capital One. They're almost entirely an online bank. I can't remember the last time I went in to a physical location, but like it, it, it took, I think it took people 
10, 15, 20 years. And, and by the way, my, my in-laws and my parents still are not, you know, still go into the bank because they didn't trust the online banking system. I, I, I think we're going to see something similar here where even if, the, even if the entire supply chain was perfectly fixed tomorrow, I think that there'd be at least a, a year or two of, of reinforcing behavior for consumers and, and even in a B2B context for people to see the system working again before they start trusting and stop ordering, you know, stop ordering holiday gifts in, in, in July because they're afraid they're not going to come. But there is a, there's an upside to that. I mean, pr- from retailers, because they get their volumes earlier, they get consumers to spend more. There is some advantage to, to the fact that uh, consumers have been sort of predispositioned. But I would tell you, from experience in it, ordering big bulky items, you've moved uh, to Boulder. I did an addition to my house and my wife and I were ordering furniture and all sorts of stuff. And the stuff that drove me nuts is when the company just didn't care. They had gotten inundated, I'm sure. The customer service reps have been inundated. So many people that were upset, they just gave, they just didn't care. They're like, there's nothing I can do about it. And that's the stuff that I hope goes away. I hope that we get to a point where there's a level of accountability. Not that the stuff isn't fair and, and sort of uh, merited in terms of, of people having to deal with it. But there's a level of accountability that's there because now you because it's more consistent, we have more trust in it, uh, that we, there's just more confidence built. I, yeah, and I, I, I agree. I also think that, I think that people need to, re, need to have realistic expectations about how much work there is to actually do. I mean, like for instance, for, 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 for your bulky items being delayed or for my West Elm order, I mean, there are dozens of systems across dozens of providers that need to be first of all, uh, digitized and modernized and then connected to each other um, before you can actually fix this data problem. I mean, you know, that's why you have companies like Project 44 and FreightWaves focusing so much on how do we get, how do we get operational data and then how do we get predictive data based on that? But I mean, you know, that, that, that West Elm furniture is probably being manufactured in mainland China is being moved to a port, goes to a customs broker, goes to an import broker, goes on a steamship. I mean, that might touch 10 transportation providers on top of the manufacturer, the distributor, the final mile carrier. And, and there are there, there's so much disparate data in actually fixing that. I mean, I, 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 that's why I think we're looking at a, at a five plus year you know, timeline on, actual, on, on really, truly fixing, fixing this. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Just knowing where things are at having control of your own supply chain. And I had a piece of art we ordered and it was, and there was a forwarder, it's a major forwarder. I won't call them out because they're friendly with them. Uh, but um, I was tempted, I know the, the head of marketing, I was tempted to reach out. I never made that phone call. I let it, I let the system uh, deal with it, but it was lost for a month. This was not an inexpensive, when it came, there were foot marks on the boxes. And I'm like, this is going to be, luckily nothing was damaged, but they had lost it. And no one seemed to care because the agent in Chattanooga was like, I just don't care. They finally found it after I went to the person I bought it from, the the art gallery I bought it from. But it's just, this is just sort of the state of the world. And this reminds you of like 1990 where the internet is sort of coming in line and, or 95 and it's sort of upline. You don't know whether you can trust it. You don't know if you're, if you put your banking information, if, if that's safe, like there's a lot of uncertainty in supply chain that we just become accustomed to not have to deal with that's uh, 
pretty crazy. I have one final thought, Peter, before we have, we go is if you think about like the hottest sort of category in freight tech, we spent a lot of time talking about the digital uh, uh, natives and uh, companies that have emerged and certainly they're there, but from a category of freight tech that you think is probably the biggest winner in all of this, if we sort of look back in 10 years and we say that is clearly the biggest winner in terms of category, what is it for you that you think is going to be the category defining technology of this generation? You know, I, I, um, I know you're a big fan of play, play bigger. I actually, I read it based on, based on you, you, you publishing your book list a couple of years ago. And, 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 and what they talk about is, is actually who's going to creating a category to, to the point where it is a line item on a PNL or on an, on an income statement. Right. And, and, you know, from my perspective, I, I think visibility is that, is that, is that category. I mean, that, that is one where there has been what, what, that is one where there now there, there are there are a few big players and there's a lot of consolidation happening in that space, but 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 from my perspective, visibility is going to be the single biggest. Now, if I were to think about where's the biggest opportunity for <clears throat> for new entrants, I love I love every every startup that's tackling one portion of the workflow. So it's like it's not building a TMS from scratch. It's it's building a new rating engine or building a new dispatch system or building a new imaging system. I think that there's so much opportunity for modular component um, pieces of technology, but I, but, but I, I, I do think that, that in terms of what's going to be the biggest, the, the new category, I think vis- visibility has already established itself that way. I, I completely agree with everything you said that visibility is the, I, I've said this before, it's the decacorn. This is in many ways what P44 4 kites, and those are, I mean, there are a couple of others, but those are, Clearly, the sort of venture you you add Macropoint in there with the cards, but really P forty four and four kites have are clearly the market leaders and are the Visa and Mastercard of this generation. And that connectivity tissue that Jet likes to talk about is what connects and unites really all this data flow. So I, I am completely bullish, and I also agree with what you said: is these sort of niche we'll call the niche startup categories. Um, it was one that's focused on the dairy supply chain that a no dynamo here in Chattanooga has backed. Um, it seems like a very small sort of problem when you think of the dairy size. I don't know how big dairy is, but it seems like a, a, a sort of an unusually focused business. But what's great about that, if, if they really focus on that vertical and are successful, that that could potentially provide expansion opportunities uh, that go well beyond that. Uh, if they can solve these problems. And it gives them really strong product market fit inside of one area that gives them the ability to leapfrog to another. So that's the play. I, I agree that focus is focus is a key to success. I mean, you know, you, you've been in this space for decades and and we just talked about how much opportunity there is. I mean, how, how, many, how, many, how many places for new entrants and success and how much how much market value there is still to gain. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes we see new freight tech companies make is they try to do everything. And, Boil and the ocean, right? Totally. And, and, and you will. And TMS. And, totally. Yeah. I agree entirely. Yeah, it's a crazy time. It's an exciting time and it's not ending anytime soon. Uh, it is funny because I would hear this a couple of years ago about how this was going to end quickly, uh, but it's not. So 
Uh, anyways, Pete, really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to continuing to have more of them over the next couple of years uh, and uh, appreciate it. That was Play Bigger uh, is the, it's about hit, becoming a category king if you're interested in the book. I recommend it. It has been a book that's helped me drive a lot of my thinking uh, and I think is is pretty instru uh, instrumental in how you think about driving valuation for companies. Uh, Pete, really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to catching up. Stay tuned for more F3. We've got a lot coming at you. And while we're not physical this time, when we get together next time, it will be in Chattanooga for F3. And in May coming up, we have the future of supply chain, which is in the epicenter of North American supply chain in Northwest Arkansas. So don't miss that. Get your tickets today.